loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello and welcome. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Emily McDowell. Emily, the creator of Empathy Cards and a cancer survivor herself, has been disrupting the stationery industry since 2013 with her, quote, greeting cards for the relationships we actually have, unquote. She's appeared on Good Morning America, NPR, NBC, and CBS News, and has been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, Women's Health, Business Insider, and Life and Style magazine, uh, along with on L.com, Cosmo.com, HuffPo.com, and Today.com, among others. She lives in Los Angeles, California. Her card, stationery, and other gifts can be found at EmilyMcDowellWith2Ls.com. And we're also going to talk about her new book, co-written with Kelsey Crow, Ph.D., called There's No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I I just want to start by saying I am a constant endorser of your empathy cards, and so uh, especially... um, pointing out their existence to people I work with with cancer because they're so uh, gratified to, to hear the way that you kind of humorously address the wrong things people say. Well, thank you. Um, so, I, I got onto your cards years ago and um, probably near when you first started developing them, I guess. And they've just been a great resource. So thank you for that off the well, bat. Thank you. Uh, now this book, which when I saw, uh, you know, when I saw it advertised, I was like, "Ha! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so wonderful to have it have it out there." Can you tell, uh, just share with the listeners a bit about how the cards and then the book came about for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I am forty years old, and I had cancer when I was twenty-four, so sixteen years ago. Um, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, one of the things that really stuck with me about my illness was that the worst part was the loneliness I felt and the kind of isolation that I felt when friends and family didn't know what to say. Um, And I had a lot of people end up kind of turning away and and shying away from me um, completely because they didn't know what to do. And I think, you know, a lot of that was because I was so young Um, You know, when you're in your early 20s, you don't really have adult coping skills yet. Um, And so I think it was exacerbated by that. But I think it's something that that I know happens at all stages of life where we just inherently don't get taught how to talk about this stuff. Um, And so when something scary happens, whether it's an illness or a death or a loss, and you don't have the right words, a lot of the time what happens is we think, like, I'm going to find the right thing to say and I'll talk to them then, and then you don't ever think of the right thing to say, and then too much time goes by, and then it gets awkward, and, you know, it's a whole thing, and it happens to all of us. And so 
that to me was, it was a really sort of formative experience for me was that was the first time I'd experienced illness or, or loss or anything like that. And it was like, oh my God, like this is a people really, people really don't know what to say to me. And, and conversely, I don't know, I don't necessarily know what to say to someone, um, you know, whose spouse has died, um, or who's gone through something. And fast forward. So, so I finished cancer treatment and I was so young that I wasn't quite ready for the life lesson of trying to integrate survivorship into who I was um, and moving forward from that place. I was much more in a place of like, I want to just put this away and kind of forget that it ever happened. And I'll talk about it if people want to talk about it, but I'm not going to identify as a survivor. I'm just going to let go of this. And I need health insurance. Like I need to, I need to take care of myself. I need to solve practical things. And so I worked in advertising for 10 years um, as a creative because it was a way for me to be creative that was in a, in a corporation and get health insurance. And I felt like it was responsible. Um, and then when I was 35, um, my college roommate and close friend uh, got cancer and died three months later. Mm. And that experience was the first time since my illness that I had been on the other side of cancer, where I had been, where it was, I was the friend, I wasn't the person who was sick, but I was the friend. And a huge observation from that time was having our mutual friends say, what, what do I say to her? Like, what's okay? Um, can I say this? Is it offensive to, to ask this? You know, will she want to talk about this? And not that I always knew the answers to those questions, but from their point of view, I was sort of because I had been through what I had been through, I was sort of a, a de facto like cancer translator. Um, right. And so the expert on right. receiving so these comments. Like, well, I don't, you know, here is what I, here is what I think, but it was, it really struck me like, wait a minute, there is something positive that came out of me being sick. And that is that I have a greater I have the I had the ability to just drop that fear and be with her, and I was able to more easily access empathy and compassion for what it would feel like to be in that situation because I had been in it, and I was able to sort of translate those things to other people who were stuck at the at this at the what do I do what do I say place, mm-hmm. and, and also yeah. there's and there's also the what happens if you say nothing? Yes. Uh, and the you know, that, that the yeah. mistakes in general for most people are more recoverable than the absence of anything at all. For sure. And for sure. it seems like you referred to that and what you said about the people who dropped away, f- pulled back from you. Uh, they didn't know what to say and they didn't say anything, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, you know, and, and it's, you know, and, and it's just, that fear is so powerful, that fear of saying the wrong thing that a lot of the time we don't say anything, even if we want to. I mean, the, the people who don't say anything want to say something. You know, nobody sits there and, and thinks like, oh, you know, my friend, my friend's husband just died. And you know what I think is best if I just don't acknowledge it at all. And, you know, I just don't say anything. And then a year from now, I'll run into her in the grocery store and like, it will be horrible, <laughs> you know, and I'm looking forward <laughs> right. to that. Like no one says, no one is thinking that way. It's just people are so afraid. They just don't know what to say. 
and they think that there's going to be some sort of magical time where the the right words are going to come to them and then they can move forward. And then when it doesn't happen, um, it just feels worse and and more awkward because you think like, oh, well, now this happened months ago and I haven't reached out and and what do I do? Um, Now it's even worse. And how do I reach out now? And so we get in our own way. And now I might remind them of this thing that's painful as if they've forgotten. Right, (laughs) right. It's such a, it's so interesting. It's such a misbelief that so many of us have, which is I'm scared to, I'm scared to remind the person, you know, what if I talk about her husband and it brings back a memory and, you know, she, she's reminded of it. What if I talk about her breast cancer and she doesn't want to be reminded. And it's like putting yourself in the, that person thinks about that thing 24 hours a day. And it's actually such a relief to have someone else acknowledge it and to have someone else be willing to talk about it with you and to, and to go there, you know, and be willing to kind of step into your reality. Um, And it's such a misbelief that so many of us have like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to trigger something bad because I'm going to remind them of it when in fact it's actually the opposite. And, you know, I, uh, I have to tell you that at one point um, I knew, already knew about your cards, but I was in Whole Foods and I saw the one, I'm sorry, I haven't been in touch. I didn't know what to say. And I thought, oh, the world is changing. Like you, yeah. can, go, you can go in and buy that card and say, instead of the God is with you or, you know, whatever else it might be that is so not um, connective yeah. That's such a, it's so connective to say, I, di- I don't, I didn't know what to say. You it know? is, it is. And that's a totally okay thing to say, you know, I mean, because everyone can understand that. Um, everyone has been in that place. We all even, you know, no matter what, what has happened to you, you, we all understand being in that place of not knowing what to say. And so it's completely fine. You know, it's, it's, it's fine to, when you don't know what to say, I think we feel like a lot of us feel like, Oh, I can't say that. I can never, I can't say like, I don't know what to do, but it's actually totally okay to say that. Um, and people don't necessarily expect you to know what to say. And so being willing to be honest about that and being willing to say, I don't know what to say. And then the implication is, but I'm here anyway, and I'm showing up for you anyway that's what's meaningful to people. It's not, they don't need you to, you know, talk them out of their pain. Um, They don't need you to be Oprah. They just need you to show up and and be your weird, not knowing what to say self. And that's fine. Well, I'm just thinking as we're talking that there's a kind of permission in that uh, where the other person then can pretty much say anything. You haven't defined the conversation in advance. Absolutely. If you say, if you say, I don't know what to say, then they can say, well, I get that. I don't know what to feel or, you know, right. whatever the next thing is. Yeah, it's really, this is really totally confusing or whatever might come next. It's open. Yeah. It gives them room to talk about how they're actually feeling instead of you presuming how they're feeling and then them sort of shutting down as a response if it's incorrect. So I sort of feel as if the book is an amplification of of the cards in a way. I mean, it felt like uh, the same voice in, you know, a couple of hundred pages that I heard in your cards originally. And there's, there's some things I really appreciate that I wanted to talk to you about. But the very, very top of the pile is humor. 
for instance, the first line of the book is, spoiler alert, bad things happen. <laughs> Such a great start, you know. Um, I've heard that same thing said many times, but starting in this kind of, um, uh, I don't know, rib-punching way, hey, we all know this, <laughs> was yeah. just f- felt like it, it just invited people in, and of course that continues. Are you by nature uh, a humorous person? Does a humorous response come to you naturally, or was yeah. that something you kind of developed? Well, you know, I think I probably developed it like in seventh grade when I figured out that I could be funny in front of the class and make people laugh. Um, but I, but I, you know, I certainly I don't think I, I I didn't develop it in response to being sick. I that's something that's always been there for me and that's something that's been you know uh, not only a coping mechanism but a bonding mechanism and just a a way just a philosophy for for kind of existing um and that's then that's my personality and um you know when I when I did these cards you're absolutely right that the book really is a continuation of of what I was doing with the cards um when I did the cards my goal was for people to for people who were going through this stuff to feel like someone gets it like this is my reality this is a validation of my reality someone people here there's someone out there that gets that I didn't just become a patient and lose my entire personality when I got diagnosed um that I still that that humor is still a way that I love to relate to people and that I relate to my friends and family and then friends and family saying thank you for making something that made it easy for me to start a conversation um, because a blank card or a traditional get well soon card doesn't, isn't super helpful. Um, and so that was kind of the impetus for those. And then with the response to the cards, it became so clear that, you know, this is a huge problem that we don't know what to say and do. And it, fe- and it felt like there was a big opportunity to create a guide um, that was, in the same tone as the cards, that was that same sort of relatable and accessible. It's not humor like haha joke humor. It's like just an accessible. It feel we wanted it to feel like a friend, um, like a friend that you liked hanging out with. You know, um, absolutely. Yeah. And Kelsey, when Kelsey and I met, um, so my co-author Kelsey Crow is the founder of an organization called Help Each Other Out, and she runs empathy boot camps that are these. Um, essentially workshops on being there workshops on workshops from which we took a lot of the content for the book that, that became the book. And Kelsey and I got introduced by a mutual friend and her approach to, after the cards came out, we met each other and her approach was so similar to mine in terms of she's someone who had been, who is a breast cancer survivor and, and is very funny and, used humor in her workshops and our sensibility about how to talk about this stuff was so similar that mm-hmm. we were really great partners in creating this book because I wasn't qualified to write the book on my own. It, you know, um, it became clear to me that we should have a book, but I wasn't, um, I'm not a researcher. I, I wanted it to be not a Buzzfeed list. I wanted it to be real and research driven and, filled with actionable information and not just sort of what I think, because that is useful to no one. And um, Kelsey had been thinking about thinking about a book on her end and and she had all this research and she had the 
she had her boot camps that were that people were really liking and um and so us getting together was kind of this perfect meld of intention for let's make this thing that doesn't exist that we both think really should exist a a kind of perfect perfect marriage of the minds to there it really was yeah um because some other things, and and we only have a couple minutes left in this segment, but from some other, and so we'll continue after. But uh, there are other things I really appreciate. Um, to me, uh, grief books, and and um, if you're going to talk in an expository way about these subjects, humor and and graphics, and not too much info on every page really helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's very digestible for people. Yeah, that was a big goal. So thank you. Um, that that is, it's great that that came across in the finished product because absolutely, yeah, did. yeah, and and it's also a book you could dabble in. You know, kind of look yeah. at something you're troubled about and read that part, and it would make perfect sense as uh, in it in itself. Um, I read it cover to cover pretty quickly, but I saw how people, if they were a little leery, could just kind of dip in and then try more later without any problem at all. And I think that's very helpful because the other thing I'm aware of is that the people on this other end trying to be empathic and, and compassionate are also probably experience some law lo- experiencing some loss of their own right the mm-hmm. the thing that's happening to their friend or loved one is by its nature happening to them and sure so that's an added added thing too and that and this I feel this would help people dive into that a bit to kind of think about where the what's being touched for them and um, be able to deal with that separately and then bring some real support uh, to the main person. Yeah, you know, we the, the first section of the book, I mean, like you said, I'm, I'm glad that that is, that that's come across too with the, with the dabbling and the, and versus reading cover to cover because we set it up that way really purposefully where you can read it cover to cover, but if you are like, you know, on the way to a party and you just found out that someone was diagnosed with something who's going to be there and you are like panicking and you have five minutes, you can look at, at just that section. I mean, it's very, um, it's broken up in a way that we want it to be as usable in as many ways as possible. And the first section is about can looking we, at your own stuff. Back, oh, sure. Let's come back to that. Let's come back yeah. to the first section, looking at your own stuff when yeah. we're done with our break, because I don't want to shortchange that. That's really vital. So, listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, all that stuff. And to find Emily McDowell, go to Emily McDowell. That's M C D O W E L L dot com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. 
Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Emily McDowell about how her own cancer diagnosis, the loss of a friend, various struggles in her own life led her to a, to the creation of a line of cards called Empathy Cards and her new book, There Is No Good Card for This. And Emily, before the uh, the break, we were just about to launch into uh, the be- what you what you cover in the beginning of your book, which is uh, kind of looking at ourselves, uh, what what's going on in us. And how do we support ourselves so that we can be there for others? Kind of put your own gas mask, I mean, put your own air mask on first. <laughs> uh, gas mask, maybe I'm thinking, uh, you know, global right. <laughs> a little bit right now. But <laughs> um, Could you talk some more about that? I, I just think that's so essential because people try to skip that and just be helpful. And that seems to backfire so commonly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing we really wanted to um, talk about in the first section of the book is looking at our own stuff and thinking about, you know, we all we all want to help. And why is it that we don't? And everybody kind of has different reasons. Everyone has that, you know, that all sort of come down to the same things. But thinking about you know, what, what can be really helpful when you are going to be supportive to someone else is first examining kind of what it is about extending um, and offering to help and being, and being present for someone suffering, what it is about that that makes you uncomfortable um, and what it is about that that makes you feel like fearful or like that you need to be someone else or that you, you aren't good at feelings or that you need to, you know... Um, be different than you than you already are in order to be good at that, um, and so 
we we sort of we talk about the three empathy roadblocks um, that we which we refer to as the things that make you tend to shy away, which are fear of doing the wrong thing, um, like oh god, what if I make it worse? You know, the pressure to cure the situation with the perfect gesture, and if you fail, then you worry about embarrassing yourself or ruining the relationship. And so that is sort of a, a, a very scary thought for some people. And then a second roadblock would be fear of saying the wrong thing. Like you don't know if you're supposed to know things or not know them. You've probably heard from a third party. You don't know kind of coming in what's okay to say. You don't want to you don't want to bring up a negative feeling or or make it or make someone you know remember something that they were trying to forget. Um, or you might feel like it's not your place to help. And so there's all of these feelings kind of swirling around that. And then the third the third um, thing that, that gets in the way of our desire to help is um, the fear of not having the time or the bandwidth. Um, you know, the belief that we, you know, knowing it that we're all busy, that life is really crazy, and that um, the belief that being present for someone is going to take a lot of time, is going to take a lot of energy, and we don't know how much commitment it takes, and we don't know if we have the bandwidth for that. Um, and so we kind of get into those three things and talking about um, breaking down each of those things and and why we actually are making it a lot harder than it needs to be, um, that our fears around these things really come down to this, to the core beliefs of I am unlovable or I am incompetent, um, which basically is, you know, <laughs> it's, it's everybody's core fear of, of anything. Um, and it's really, it's really the same um, when you're thinking about things that are getting in the way of, of reaching out to someone when you know that you, that you want to. Um, and so what ends up happening is we play it safe by sort of avoiding the situation altogether. And it's really tempting to, to kind of avoid the risk of failure um, in that situation and, and, and not risk the vulnerability that goes along with, with reaching out. Um, and that also to me refers to highlighting one fear to the exclusion of others. For instance, you could be afraid of, of reaching out, but are you also afraid of not reaching out? Um, (laughs) yeah, right. And, and having, having the person feel uncared for or, um, you know, the, the fear of reaching out is sort of a short-term versus a long-term fear, would you say? Yeah, um, absolutely. I do. I think that, and I think, I think that the fear around, I think there's so much, there's so much fear and so much of it is, is self-imposed um, because we have, we carry around a lot of, of beliefs about what is supportive and what is not supportive. And there are a lot of sort of, um, we do make it so much harder than it needs to be. We think that in order to be supportive, we need to show up and, and be um, and and be a therapist. You know, we think that we need to be um, some sort of emotional ninja that has all kinds of skills that we don't have, or that we need to, that in order for a gesture to be supportive, that we need to be able to drop everything and take someone to their doctor's appointment every day. And actually, you know, all of the research shows that sometimes the gestures that are the most meaningful are the smallest gestures. Um, sending a text like. Uh, being do, doing one tiny small kindness um, that stays in people's minds um, that can be that can be as important um, as some of the bigger things. Um, and the thing that we get into next, you know, in the first chapter is talking about 
the things that that we carry around, um, the psychological baggage that we carry around that gets in the way of, of, of connecting with people, which is the guilt about how we might have let others down in the past, um, and then also resentment about how we've been let down by others in the past. And uh, you end up with this set of beliefs that either we're not enough or in conjunction, we're not enough and or that other people are not enough. And those beliefs get in the way of trusting our innate ability to show up and be present um, in a way that feels like enough. That's interesting. I, I, it's making me think of, of this from my own uh, experience. The amount of failures in communication that happened at the beginning of my wife's illness were mighty. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it just happened and happened and happened and happened. But um, since she was ill for a very long time, she developed some comebacks. She also had a wicked sense of humor and she developed some comebacks. And over time, uh, people kind of got over it, right? And they, you know, they kind of examined what they were saying and what wasn't working because she didn't reject them. She right. would just kind of bounce it back. Yeah. And uh, so we had this very nicely vetted group of community helping us for years. And then the next thing was noticing if they gave something that they didn't quite want to because they thought they should, we could feel that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It it really felt off. and, And we wouldn't be able to figure out what was off at first. But... Then we would accidentally find out that person didn't really want to be doing that. Right. And some and some other job was perfect for them, you know. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. A, uh, that's a case in point that uh, what we want to give also satisfies the other person. Absolutely. And, you know, it's you, it's funny that you say that because, it, I mean, that segues really perfectly into uh, the, I, this idea that Kelsey developed for her workshops that we have in the book called The Empathy Menu. Um, and it, it all stems from the idea that the best thing that you can give someone is something that you can give with joy. It's not about doing a sp- certain specific thing. It's not about, you know, providing what you think they need. It's about what can I give that I genuinely want to give that I feel great about giving that I can do, you know, that feels authentically like me, that feels like um, sort of the opposite of an obligation. And because the more you, because first of all, like the person can feel it, like you said, you know, the person can feel if it's coming from a place of legitimate um, joy and, 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 or if, if it's coming from a place of feeling like, ah, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do, so I guess I'm going to do this. Um, and then also, if you enjoy doing it, you're more likely to do it. Um, you're more That's likely so to right. follow through um, and actually do it instead of seeing it as an obligation and then something that you end up putting off and then you feel guilty about it and then it becomes something that like sort of hangs around your neck. And if it's something yes. you love, just you you do it, you know? That's right. My favorite example of this from our life together is a friend who was making us dinner every week. And we noticed that when that dinner was coming, we had a little bit of dread and there was (laughs) and there was nothing wrong with the food. Like we couldn't say, don't make us, you know, okra or something. (laughs) Uh, There was nothing wrong with the food whatsoever. And one night she couldn't get 
dinner together, but she offered to come do the dishes after dinner. Someone else brought dinner. Yeah. So she was at the sink doing the dishes, and, and she said out loud, oh, I love doing the dishes. I'm not much of a cook. Ah. <laughs> you, yeah. know, I, you know, I don't really love cooking, right? And we were like, never cook for us again, but come do the dishes anytime, <laughs> you know? Totally. It's that yeah. kind of thing where she hadn't realized she was doing it. She was a very loving and, mm-hmm. and caring and generous person. But we were feeling it, you know, and the food was not bad, believe me. It just didn't feel right. Yeah. (laughs) That's my my favorite example of what we're talking about. That's a really good example. You know, and cooking, it's it's we have sort of as a culture a few a few sort of shorthand examples that we cling to of like things you're supposed to do. Like and cooking is kind of one of them, like bring food. But you don't think of doing the dishes necessarily in that same way like we aren't you know it's not one of our sort of cultural go-tos as like well someone is sick you should go do their dishes but actually that's just as helpful um maybe maybe more helpful in the sense that people would bring dinner and then they would you know leave their container and i mean you get overwhelmed by things that aren't that big Right. And you end up with a lot of dinners sometimes, you know, like a lot of dinner or a yeah. lot of containers that you don't know whose it is. Or, you know. Right. It's very helpful to have someone come and take care of all that and return the container to the person or whatever it might be. Uh, Absolutely. So it, that's a very good metaphor for what you're talking about, perhaps just doing staying in your lane. Maybe another person just wants to come b- mow the grass or something. Right. Right, right. And, you know, the way that the way that we break it down in the book um, is, you know, you look at you think about like, well, you know, I'm maybe I'm not a cook. What do I do? And then we have sort of 15 different suggestions for, you know, if you're an organizer, you could do this or this or this. If you like, you know, if you um, like driving people around, you could do this or this. If you are just on your phone all day, like take advantage of that and do this or this, like just some some really sort of something that's we we try to do something for everyone but you could that you could look at this list and and think at least one or two of these things apply to me absolutely i mean there are so many ideas of what to do and also a real focus on if you are going to converse um how to keep that resonant and real and meaningful yes. within limits yeah uh, for sure which is another big big um, impediment sometimes uh, how, how does it become a conversation and not just a oh so sorry or you know yes I, I feel you you two did a good job of kind of uh, creating conversation options <laughs> well thank <laughs> it you were. yeah thank you I think you know what something that when I learned this was a huge relief to me you know was that showing up is so much more about listening than it is about talking. Mm. And it's a lot easier to learn how to listen than it is to learn how to say the perfect thing. Um, Because there is kind of no such thing as the perfect thing anyway. That's a myth. Um, But you can certainly like waste a lot of time and, and emotional angst trying. But listening is something that all of us can do. And we have, we all sort of have some, some habits and we, and we talk, you know, and, and the section, I think probably my favorite section in the book kind of goes into the, the, what kind of non-listeners 
each of us tend to be in certain ways. There's um, because there's listening like you do in, an, in a normal conversation, which honestly, a lot of the time is formulating your response, right? Like when you're in a, when you're in a, in a normal everyday conversation at work or like with a friend or whatever, like a lot of the listening is waiting until it's your time to talk again. And that's what you think <laughs> of as listening. I mean, like, you right. know, and we all kind of do that. Like, oh, I have a funny thing I'm going to say, or like, oh, I have a very insightful response to that. And um, it's about switching, you know, and realizing that what works for those for those kinds of situations, it doesn't work for a supportive listening relationship. And just kind of learning some ground rules about what we call empathic listening versus versus what we tend to do in other parts of life. Well, uh, I actually think, though, that those are pretty good rules in general. I, I, I you know, yes. I, I see a yeah. lot of couples and where that goes off track often is that the two people are in totally different types of conversations. One person is trying to fix something or improve something and the other person just wants to be heard. Yes. And there's, and there's no are, way right. that's yeah. that's not going to ever connect. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it, and it's usually going to turn conflictual. So uh, I, I think it's a pretty good uh, rule of thumb to know to know that in any conversation that's got any depth to it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are skills that translate to any into any relationship. Um, you can always be an empathic listener. So it uh, just know, so any happened. Situation. It just so happened, funnily enough, I was open to that. I, I had your book open to that page. What kind of non-listener are you? And we're oh, going to yeah. take another break. And then let's start off with, with those, because uh, I think that's both humorous and we can all recognize ourselves in one or more of them. Yes, I can. The ways that we don't listen. So let's come back to that. And, and listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com or the Good Grief host page to find me, to find Emily McDowell. Go to emilymcdowell.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. 
Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Emily McDowell, and we've been talking about her book, which is called There Is No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. And before the break, Emily, we were just starting to talk about uh, a section of your book that's uh, that the highlight line is, what kind of non-listener are you? Which I love because we all are at times. Uh, you know, I, I listen for a living, but sometimes I, I go home to my dear wife and I just don't have any listening in me. You know, so I, I recognize myself at moments in this. I think we all can. Could you go into the different ways to not listen that, that sure. you and Kelsey came up with? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so these are, so this is a, this is expressed sort of in a comic style in the book. Um, and we have five. And and graphically with wonderful graphics, Um, which. Yeah. 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 So we have five, uh, five types of non-listeners that we've identified and I'm sure I've been all five, um, in one point or another. So the first one is the sage who gives wise perspective and advice when it wasn't necessarily asked for. Um, We have the optimist who always offers a bright-sided perspective. We have the doomsayer who reacts with alarm to any situation, bringing up other alarming situations. Uh, We have the epidemiologist who asks a lot of clarifying facts-based questions before learning how someone is actually feeling. And we have the all-about-me who, in an effort to relate, inadvertently makes the conversation all about his or her situation and problems. Um, that that really nails it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should maybe all just just uh, photocopy this page and walk around with it to remind ourselves. <laughs> For sure. You know, is this? Are they wanting this person I'm being right now? <laughs> right, right, right. And well, what's and all- so ironic? It's so ironic because actually, when people are in trouble. Uh, a lot of what they want is just for someone to listen caringly and not say much of anything. Exactly. It's it's um, a lot of what it is, is having someone be willing to witness their suffering. You know, having someone be willing to sit there with you and just and just bear witness to your pain without trying to talk you out of it, without trying to solve it, without trying to, you know, suggest a cure for it. Um, but just being there and... A lot of that, in, a lot of that, is just about getting comfortable with silence. Um, and we tend to, I think, culturally feel like silence is something to be avoided at all times. A lot of us do. I mean, the phrase "awkward silence" exists for a reason, right? Like, but Absolutely. silence is actually not inherently awkward. It's only awkward when we're not used to it. Um, it only feels awkward, and there's actually nothing wrong with it. And sometimes the most supportive thing you can do is just sit with someone in silence. Well, but, and that brings up, I've, I've had the experience many times of, of, uh, for instance, clients, uh, they don't have anything on the top of their heads to say, and we have a period of silence Mm -hmm. and it's actually very intimate. Yeah. And, and that makes people kind of squirrely sometimes the intimacy of silence. True. That's a good, that's a very good point. It does. Uh, It can feel, you're sharing something. Yeah. You know, you're, that, you're really sharing something. Yeah. 
Exactly. And sharing something with, without defense in a way, because you're not in your head coming up with words or uh, you're just sitting there. Right. Um, so I think that's a factor too, yes? Absolutely. That, that we so. might just want to fill in the space sometimes. Yeah. I mean, we definitely, I, I definitely have been guilty of just wanting to fill in the space um, because we're we're more comfortable. We're just, we're more used to uh, being the version of ourselves that that is chattery, you know, and that, and that talks and that's more of a, we're more used to, those are our defenses. Those are our, that's our way of sort of dealing with the world and dealing with things that are uncomfortable is talking it, talking it away, talking it out, you know, and, 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 and solving it. And a lot of these situations, it's actually counterintuitive, but you know, those things don't, those things are not super helpful. Maybe we're in a way talking, you know, I'd love to know how this goes in cultures that are less solution driven. Uh, You know, problems must be fixed Um, because a lot of the things we're talking about can't be fixed. Right. Uh, If you're getting a divorce, if you have cancer, you can you can treat the cancer, but you can't fix that. The person has now had cancer. It's not a fix. Uh a fixed kind of thing. And I don't think we're used to that. No, we're not. And in fact, you know, I mean, like you said, we are such a solution-based culture and every, you know, in, in so many aspects of being a person, you're rewarded for being, it, having solutions and finding solutions mean, means that you are an effective human being, that you, you know, you're rewarded for, for coming up with those things. And these are things that these kinds of problems are really not fixable which is which is a relief, I think. I mean, it, it was a relief to me when I started, you know, kind of learning about this work and and learning more about this stuff, because the pressure to say and do the right thing to try to fix it for me was always really great. The internal pressure, feeling like mm. I have to come up with the right thing, or I have to ask the right question, or I have to have the right, you know, wise quote over a picture of a sunset on my Pinterest board. I mean, you know, like, it's like that sort of, and that was always, um, I would get really in my head about that stuff and feel a lot of pressure to be this, to be this sort of wise version of myself. And what we call this, you know, what I just referred to as the sage. And that actually like that stuff doesn't really help. Um, you know, you could say, you can say something that is, that is, very objectively wise and it doesn't matter you know it does that's that doesn't that doesn't help the person feel better um because they're there you it's it's it comes off as trying to sort of talk them out of their pain Absolutely. and what they need is to just be able to be in it and feel supported in it The other thing I really noticed in your book along the lines of what I loved about it is the stories where people really fail miserably, but because they're able to say, oh, my God, that was horrible what I just did. The the friendship or the relationship came through it. Um, The one that's standing out in my mind right now is where uh, a friend told her friend she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. They kept talking for a while. They're on a walk. And then she says, have you seen terms of endearment? And her friend says, you mean the one where the person dies of breast cancer with young, young children? And, you know, oh, God, what a dummy, you know, but that their relationship could sustain that. 
they could sustain the mistake, but not the withdrawal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think mistakes in general are really forgivable. I mean, we all fumble. It's just, it's, we all, we all have, we all struggle with this stuff, you know, and when people say, you know, when I was, when I was sick and people would say, you know, kind of crazy things, um, I always knew that they were, that their intentions were good, Mm -hmm. you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't, I wouldn't be upset at the person. I would be more upset sort of at the situation and at the, and the, at the alienation that I felt, but I didn't ever feel like it was that person's fault. Like I wasn't angry at the person. Um, I was more just frustrated by this thing that had this situation that had come between myself and my friend, if that makes any sense. It does because it's isolating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and who you, who you keep going with and what you, you then share post that moment is, is affected by the mistake, right? Unless it gets kind of worked out. Yeah. You know, if the person, yes, absolutely. You know, and, and you, cause you feel like you only have a certain amount, you know, you feel like, can I trust, can I trust this person with information? Can I, you know, can I trust my feelings with this person? And, but if the person is, if the person owns their mistakes and owns their awkwardness and owns their kind of fallibility around this stuff, um, I always felt personally really, really, inclined to continue to trust them it was more it was more really the people that the people that um I really ended up feeling divided from were really the people who ended up who turned away who just felt who just because what happened with me and I and at the time I really interpreted this as as being something that was a fault of mine so when people turned away from me when I was sick my interpretation of what was happening was that person doesn't care about me because I'm not good enough. Mm. And like, if I was cooler or had been a better friend or had been, if I was like better at having cancer, then this person would be, you know, all about it. And this <laughs> instead person, of I'm, I'm 24 and pretty much right. nobody has already gone through. No, and nobody knows them. what, <laughs> right. And nobody knows what to do and everyone is super terrified, but I just didn't have the, I didn't have the life perspective to understand that, you know, and I hadn't been through enough situations on my own to understand this is, this is how, this is our default response to things like this. And it doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything about the person who's sick. Um, And it has everything to do with, with our own misconceptions about our ability to um, be present for someone else. I feel like between the the lines, we're a little bit talking about platitudes, too. And I want to circle back around to your cards because a lot of the misfires are people pulling out because they don't know what to say. They pull out something they've heard before. For instance, uh, you know, everything happens for a reason. So I loved your card that says, please let me be the first to punch the next person who tells you everything happens for a reason. Uh, You know, because, because uh, I mean, I feel as if it would be a pretty good crib sheet to read some of your cards because they address those things that people say without really thinking it through. For sure. Uh, uh, you know, when, 
I'm sorry you're sick. I want you to know that I will never try to sell you on some random treatment I read about on the internet. You know, that kind of turning it around that that informs the person, oh, don't say that. That chapter of your ver- your book um, called Just Let Me Not Be a Disaster, I think it's called. Yes. Just yeah. Help Me Not Be a Disaster. Yeah. Um, you can pretty much be sure if it's something that so- that people say as like a glib response, it's not that helpful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, and just recognizing what those are. So we only have a couple of minutes left, Emily, and I want to give you the- a chance just to throw in anything else you feel we've not gotten to that's really important to you for listeners to know about. I hope they'll go get the book and, and discover more, but... Um, what what can how can we draw to a close this wonderful conversation? You know, I think um, this has been so great, and thank you so much for having me on. I think, you know, one of the things the, the the main the main thing that you know, if I were to sort of sum up this book, it would be that this is a guide that that I hope that people who read this book come away with the confidence to show up as themselves feeling like they have all the tools they need to be supportive in any given situation to to anyone um, and that they don't and feeling like they 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 don't need any other training you know they don't need any other they don't need to um, be good at their you know be, be a therapist they don't need to be the Dalai Lama they can be their own imperfect self and still be wonderfully supportive. Um, and that's that's summed yeah. up here. Your three touchstones. Your kindness is your credential. Listening speaks volumes. And small gestures make a big difference. So thank you for being here. I could talk another hour, but I've really enjoyed our time together. I have too. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.